It's been a year since Pope Francis stood before an empty and rain-soaked St. Peter's Square and delivered a special blessing for a world upended by the coronavirus. Holding up a golden monstrance containing the Eucharist, he slowly moved it in the sign of the cross. As the bells of the basilica rang out, the Pope asked God to bless the city of Rome and the entire world. Simple, yet stunningly effective. This week on the podcast, in honor of Holy Week, we're going to try to keep it simple as well. On this episode, our senior Rome correspondent, Hannah Brockhaus, tells us about a special Holy Week pilgrimage and speaks to an ambassador about why she loves this pilgrimage so much. And later, we'll speak to an expert on liturgical music to ask why the music at Easter Mass might sound a little different this year. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. My first ever visit to Rome was during the Easter Triduum, and every year I've lived here, my own love for this time in the Church's liturgical year has grown. I still have vivid memories, for example, of praying the Stations of the Cross with Pope Francis against the dramatic backdrop of the Colosseum. On that night in 2014, a friend and I stood for hours, shoulder to shoulder with thousands of people, as we quietly meditated on Christ's passion and death. I remember the dark blue of that cool April night, our candles blown out by the breeze, and the brightly lit cross next to the Pope on the Palatine Hill above us. There are so many wonderful ways to live those sacred three days from the evening of Holy Thursday to Easter Sunday, from venerating relics of the Passion to attending Mass in the flower-filled St. Peter's Square. One special way to mark Lent and Holy Week in Rome is by visiting what are known as the Station Churches. The roots of this tradition can be traced back to the late 2nd or early 3rd century, when the Pope, as Bishop of Rome, would visit the various Christian churches around the city to offer Mass. After going through some changes over the centuries, by the time of the Council of Trent in the 6th century, the Stational Churches were set to more or less the schedule still followed today, one church for each of the 40 days of Lent. During that season, the North American College leads a pilgrimage to the Station Churches on Monday through Saturday, where Mass is offered in English at 7 a.m. The seminarians studying at the college rise early, arriving at each church on foot. This year, the pilgrimage was canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But one diplomat in Rome has decided to follow the tradition on her own. So I try, although it is becoming a bit of an obsession, um, I try not to let it interfere too much with my working day, so I usually go either before or after work. Sally Axworthy, the United Kingdom's ambassador to the Holy See, spoke to my colleague Courtney Mares about her experience visiting the station churches during the first part of Lent, before Italy's new lockdown went into effect on March 15th. 
Luckily in Rome, there hasn't been too much rain. So, uh, you know, it makes a, a lovely walk every, every morning or evening uh, to go and see a different church. And of course, uh, as a master of the Holy See, you often go to events in churches. So I know a lot of the churches, but I've been surprised at how many are new to me as well. This is Ambassador Axworthy's fifth and final year in Rome as the UK's ambassador to the Holy See. And she wanted to explore some of the city's early Christian churches before returning home. I do have some favourites. I don't think I can just narrow it down to one. But I, I particularly like the churches where you get a sense of the antiquity of the place. I mean, many, many of the churches have been redecorated during the Renaissance period with these fabulous frescoes. But I like the, the simpler ones. You know, I think in Rome, you're, we're all very aware of um, the, the more recent history of the, the church, which is there, you know, in the, in the churches and in the art. What this has done is it made me, it's made me conscious that, um, that, that really everything, not everything, but the whole history of the church has been preserved and that you can discover the history of the early church in Rome as much as you can discover, you know, the, the Renaissance and the Counter-Reformation and all the kind of later years. The ambassador chronicled her daily pilgrimages on Twitter, sharing photos and a few words about each church. I, I have found as ambassador that uh, um, my social media followers are very interested in everything about life in Rome. And often it's, um, if I tweet about a work meeting, they're obviously not so excited about that. <laughs> but they do like to hear about uh, what goes on in the, in the Vatican uh, and, you know, uh, the, the life of the Holy See, really. She said one fascinating thing she has discovered is how many of the station churches are not located in the historic center of Rome, but can be found further on the outskirts, and how that has given her a greater sense of what Christianity was like in the first centuries. I think uh, the whole history of early Christianity is pretty interesting. You know, because I think through the churches you can see clearly how um, they began as uh, groups gathering in houses to worship and often during times of persecution they would have been doing that secretly um, and then those house churches uh, you know became became actual churches uh, or the churches were built on the uh, on the sites of uh, the burial grounds of martyrs so this whole this whole uh, journey is is like a journey into early christianity Two of her favorite churches to visit are Santa Sabina and San Giorgio in Velabro, where she said the ancient simplicity of the churches has been preserved. Axworthy said she hopes sharing her pilgrimages to Rome Station churches on social media can provide a little glimmer of hope to those in difficult circumstances, including the many people around the world still under lockdown. So, you know, I think Rome is famous for, um, for the, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, and uh, it's sort of, uh, and for the Renaissance. But this bit, the, the, uh, the history of early Christianity is really worth exploring too. And for me, it's been very nice in my last few months uh, to be doing this and to be discovering another side of Rome. And I certainly intend to pack as much in before I go um, as I can. Another tradition from the early church is making a pilgrimage to the Scala Santa, or Holy Stairs, held to be the staircase which led to the Praetorium of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, and which Christ would have ascended on his way to the trial before his crucifixion. 
According to tradition, the stairs were brought to Rome by St. Helen, the mother of Constantine the Great in the fourth century. Jill Alexi, who has worked as a professor and a private tour guide in Rome, and now owns Seed the Sacred Consultancy, told me it is one of her favorite places to take students on Good Friday. None of them seem to know about the Holy Stairs. <laughs> so just not a well-known um, chapel in our day and age. Now, in the past, the Holy Stairs was the focal point of pilgrims coming to Rome. Jill told me that when the stairs were brought to Rome, St. Helen had them placed in a special chapel built into the Patriarchate, part of the building surrounding the Basilica of St. John Lateran. At that time, the Lateran Basilica, as the Cathedral of Rome, was the Pope's residence and the center of Christian life in the city. Because these stairs were there, and pilgrims would walk across all of Europe, basically, to come to Rome to see um, the tombs of the apostles Peter and Paul, to visit with the saints and the martyrs, the 40 station churches of Rome, but then especially to offer their devo filial devotion to Christ and Christ on the cross. So they would go up these steps on their knees, and for 1,500 years, that was kind of like, you know, the big thing to do, the number one on the top 10 list. She said she takes the students she's leading in Rome to visit the Holy Stairs at 3 p.m. on Good Friday, the hour the church says Jesus died. The custom is to climb the stairs on your knees, saying a little prayer on each step. I'm not the only person who likes to do that, so I go knowing full well that um, there's going to be a super long line. But I actually love that part of it um, because when there is just a line of people out the door waiting for hours to go and uh, offer the devotion of the Holy Stairs, um, it shows you how the faith is alive and well um, in the hearts and minds of the faithful. She always looks forward to this moment. So it's like every year getting to go up the Holy Stairs on my knees. Um, is like every year getting to have such a close connection with the historical reality of Christ, which becomes the actual reality of the passion that we live in these three days. Um, and even though the moment of going up the stairs is silent and totally on your own, I feel like something that monumental is an experience that can only be shared. And I love sharing it with people. Jill told me if she could be anywhere in the world for Easter, she would definitely choose to be in Rome. I studied abroad in Jerusalem for a summer when I was studying for my Master's of Theology at Notre Dame, and I loved it, don't get me wrong, it's incredible. But I just feel like Jerusalem is where Jesus lived once, but Rome is where Jesus lives today. In no time, no place is that more vibrant and um, unmistakable than at Easter. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Hannah Brockhaus. After the break, some of the hymns you grew up singing at Mass may be going away. We examine why right after this. This is Michelle LaRosa, Deputy Editor-in-Chief at CNA. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school my whole life. I work for Catholic News Agency. But I have certainly not exhausted the richness of the Catholic faith. 
I like CNA Newsroom because it allows me to continue learning new things about the Catholic world, from inspiring stories of modern-day saints to a look at where the Palm Sunday palms come from to the ethical considerations surrounding vegetarianism. There's always something new to learn, something interesting to reflect on and discuss. If you're interested in learning more about the Catholic world from all kinds of different perspectives, CNA Newsroom is the podcast for you. Subscribe to CNA Newsroom on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Each episode will be delivered straight to your phone. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Now, back to the episode. This Easter, whether you're coming back to Mass for the first time in years, or merely for the first time since the pandemic started, there's a possibility you may not hear some of the hymns you grew up with. That's because last September, the U.S. Bishops' Committee on Doctrine released new guidelines for evaluating which hymns should be sung at Mass. The document is called Catholic Hymnody at the Service of the Church. Yeah, I read about it right away and I was very, very happy to see it. Uh, and I think it did make a pretty big splash. To tell us about it, here's Adam Bartlett. I am the CEO and founder of Source and Summit, based in Denver, Colorado. Adam's an expert on liturgical music. He founded Source and Summit, a website where parishes can get all kinds of resources for improving their music at Mass. We have such an emphasis on singing hymns and selecting music. You know, some people call it... uh, with tongue-in-cheek, the, the four hymn sandwich mass, you know, the, the job of the music director is to select four hymns and, and so forth. Uh, but really, there are three different levels within the liturgy that are meant to be sung. First and foremost, it is the order of mass. So the Lord be with you and with your spirit, the, all the parts that the priest says with the people responding. That never changes. Be with you all. Then the second level is the ordinary of the mass. And that's the Kyrie and the Gloria, even the Creed, believe it or not, and the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei. And we have mass settings or mass ordinaries that tend to change with uh, the seasons. And then the third category is really the one that we're talking about here. And that's called the proper of the mass. And I, I was a lifelong liturgical musician, and I only discovered in college that this existed Uh, But the proper of the Mass includes antiphons and psalms that are found in the liturgical books that the church gives us to sing. And not only that, they have musical settings that have been handed down to us for 1,500 years in Gregorian chant. So there are actually books that the church publishes that set these to music, but, um, you know, the, the common practice in our time, which is really quite recent, is to select hymns that replace those parts that the church gives us to sing. The bishop's document was primarily focused on the lyrics of Catholic hymns and laid out some criteria for evaluating whether the hymns accurately convey the truths that Catholics believe. There have been, you know, doctrinal and and theological problems in the hymns that we've sung. The document says, quote, Over the years, concerns have been raised regarding the lyrics of hymns and songs used in the liturgy that may be misleading or lacking in substance. 
you have parishes and you know particularly different um, generations in our in our times that you know have preference for different kinds of uh, hymns and songs. I think that that phenomenon is natural with devotional music, and from generation to generation, there are going to be different preferences and so forth. The document gives examples of hymns that convey Catholic beliefs accurately, as well as ones that convey them inaccurately. For example, according to the bishops, hymns that imply that the Eucharist is merely bread and wine, rather than the true body and blood of Jesus, have no place in a Catholic Mass. We had, you know, the alarming statistic, I think, you know, right, right around that time about the, the belief in the, the real presence in the Eucharist within the church and how alarmingly low that was. Instead of hymns such as, let us break bread together on our knees, the document suggests hymns such as Ave Verum Corpus and I am the bread of life. So the church uh, has had a perennial maxim, uh, lex orandi, lex credendi, you know, that the way that we pray and the way that we worship in a very real way forms what we believe. And if we're praying with texts and with music that is not giving us the fullness or even in many ways contradicts the church's teaching on the Eucharist, you know, that will have a very real implication on what people believe in the Eucharist. Another of the bishop's criteria for hymns that ought not be played at Mass anymore were hymns that convey an inaccurate view of the Jewish people. In particular, the document singles out hymns that, quote, imply that the Jews as a people are collectively responsible for the death of Christ. The document pointed out Lord of the Dance as particularly problematic in this category. The document also emphasized the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, criticizing hymns that seem to show a reluctance to use the word Father. Predictably, not everyone welcomed the bishop's suggestions. Some of the hymns listed as deficient were perennial favorites in many parishes. And we know that change is difficult, especially if you have, you know, these beloved, you know, frankly, largely devotional songs that have fostered your devotion and your faith and that you're used to and that you like and you like to pray with. And if, if those are taken away, that can be very painful. In no way do I want to say that you know, using the guitar or contemporary music or various styles of music is antithetical to the faith, but also we have to ask, what is its purpose? Is, is it reflecting and is it pointing toward the purpose of the liturgy, which is something very distinct? To make it easier to transition away from these hymns towards more traditional music, Adam said he recommends gradually adding in traditional elements to the Mass, such as an entrance antiphon. If we're used to singing an opening hymn, let's continue to do that. But as soon as the priest reaches the altar, we're going to switch to the entrance antiphon. And during the incensation, uh, we'll sing the, en the entrance antiphon. Uh, uh, the entire congregation even can, can sing, or they don't have to. They don't have to. They can, they can listen to it. Um, ideally, they should eventually you know, come to sing it. But then what happens is the priest will go right into the sign of the cross, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And you get the seamless transition from a chanted entrance antiphon into the chanted order of Mass. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. 
today, my brothers and sisters, the Lord calls us to come and worship him as we heard in the entrance antiphon, right? And you begin to catechize and help people understand the, the meaning and the importance and the significance of, of those parts of uh, the mass. So we need to be helping people understand what they are and what their value is. They don't have to just preach on the liturgy, uh, the liturgy of the word, rather, the, the lectionary readings. They can preach on any part of the liturgy. So they can say, uh, the entrance antiphon called us, you know, presented this theme that we heard reiterated in the gospel today. So, you know, I think that those are techniques that really help people understand and come to appreciate singing the mass without ripping away the devotional music that they've you know, become accustomed to. Adam said, while the hymns that music ministers select for each mass are certainly important, they're not the most important part of the mass. The purpose of sacred music as well is actually the purpose of the liturgy itself, which is the glory of God in the sanctification of the faithful. Adam advocates a back to basics approach when it comes to music at mass. We need music that catechizes and that, that helps us pray devotionally and that, that helps us evangelize. So there's no question about that. But in, um, in the liturgy, there are actually texts that are given to us to sing that have been formed by the liturgy itself. And those are the texts of scripture. Those are the texts of the Psalms and they're woven into the fabric of the liturgy itself and have been over time. So the beauty of our sacred music tradition, which Vatican II exalted, is that it gives primacy to the word. It gives primacy to the words of scripture, to the words of the liturgy itself. And, you know, it, at no point does the music require that the texts be changed. And I think a lot of times we get uh, doctrinal ambiguity, not intentionally, but as a consequence of having to change the texts because of the demands of the music. So if you think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I shall want. Well, there are three different ways off the top of my head that I, I can think of us singing hymns that, that you know, purport to set this text, this, uh, this psalm to music. The king of love my shepherd is, my shepherd will my needs supply, or how about shepherd me, O God, beyond my wants, you know, and so forth. Uh, none of those say the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I shall want. They've been changed in order to meet the demands of a musical meter. But the scriptures are not metric, you know, uh, they don't, they're not poetry in that way. And the, the sacred music tradition, notably Gregorian chant, always takes the text as it is and never, ever, ever tries to change that text. And so that's the reason number one, why the church continues to uphold Gregorian chant is a supreme model because it in no way needs to change the text. Adam said some of his favorite hymns are directly based on the words of scripture or were written in the early days of Christianity by saints such as Ambrose. All of those hymns, the liturgy, the hours are so unbelievably rich. And I'm talking about hymns written by Ambrose and Gregory the Great and Thomas Aquinas and Bernard of Clairvaux and literally saints in every age. Uh, and I do hope that those hymns that, that I love uh, and that, you know, uh, Catholics in every age have, have loved and prayed, that they make a bit of a comeback, you know, in our time. Changes to the music at Mass can be hard to swallow for many Catholics. 
But Adam said the disruption of the pandemic actually presents an opportunity for parishes to make some changes for the better. A lot of parishes have had no singing at all for the last year, or maybe just a single cantor who is uh, singing, you know, familiar or even unfamiliar uh, songs and even chants. When congregations have often been asked not to sing or to sing lightly uh, and so forth, it's, it's been a very disruptive time for music and liturgy. So I would say that if anything, that might be a good opportunity to implement a document like this because we're already in the midst of all kinds of change. We can pull away, you know, some things that were more familiar and that in ordinary times we expected to hear and expected to sing. And maybe those can just kind of, you know, fade away into, uh, you know, a happy memory and we can we can move on with you know more theologically sound hymn texts. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and producer Jonah McKeown, and our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Have a blessed and peaceful Holy Week, everybody. See you next time.